0: Welcome to Inside the Rope with David Clark, the podcast where we interview some of the leading minds in wealth management. Hi everyone, this is David Clark. Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to some of the leading minds in wealth management. Happy New Year, and to kick off uh, our podcast series we've got for 2018, We've got Brett Gillespie in this issue. Brett is the head of Global Macro for Elliston Capital and uh, as you'll listen, he's very impressive and has a lot of good thoughts. I was alerted to him and reached out to Brett uh, following an article that I read of his uh, talking about interest rates and more specifically property prices and where they were heading. So I hope you enjoy. I found him to be a fascinating, very well educated, uh, and with a great opinion to interview hope you enjoy of course looking forward to receiving all your feedback Brett welcome to inside the rope thank you David Brett I was and the reason I reached out to talk to you was a result of an email that was forwarded to me by a colleague and quite often you'll get an email forwarded to you with an article and in this instance I was a bit naughty, and I actually emailed it back and said oh it'd be really helpful if you give me the five key takeouts of this but nonetheless I read it and I was really impressed um, by this article um, burning down the house Um, and and, and that was really it really stood out to me as being a great piece and a great thought piece around a subject which you rightly point out is hugely popular in Australia I don't think you can be Australian and attend a barbecue without somebody talking about house prices. So that's how we've got here. Would you mind starting off and giving uh, our listeners a bit of understanding as to who you are, your background, your position and so forth?
1: Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, I've been in financial markets since 1989. Uh, So that sort of indicates how old I'm starting to get. Um, Vintage. Yes. So ever since 1989, um, I've been trading interest rates uh, originally in Australia and now in the globe. And getting interest rates right is getting the central bank right and what they're going to do. So when you sit down at a barbecue and someone says, is the Reserve Bank going to put interest rates up? That's what I'm paid to have a view on. Um, So clearly you've had to understand housing very well over the last three decades if you're going to get the central bank actions right. So um, my first 10 years uh, was purely looking after the interest rate uh,
0: view for Bankers Trust uh, through... The 1990s. Yep. I've and got a great uh, photo, and I'll share this to the listeners here. Yeah. Uh, I've got a great photo of you in the Sydney Futures Exchange pit, as you say, executing for Bankers Trust in the colourful jacket. Yeah. Um, yeah. And trading. We we we. In your article, you allude to um, the 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 fact that at that point you were really just executing the banks' orders, and which you were very good at it, but not real deep understanding of what was changing the prices of exactly. the interest rate exactly, so forth.
1: And that's what BT used to do in those days. They would rotate the graduates through every department so they get an idea of how each department works and you then you build up your knowledge base. So yeah, I, I was watching the, the expectations for interest rates wang around all over the place each day. Um, I would get the trades done very efficiently, but I didn't really know why they were going up and down. Um, and I spent the next years learning about the economies and understanding why the Reserve Bank would make decisions on interest rates and what they were looking at, um, and as I said a key factor was understanding the housing cycle when you make those calls. So, uh, my next job after 10 years there was still within BT but in the financial management, uh, the the real money as we call it, so managing the fixed income funds, so that's all the bond investments I was looking after, six billion of bond, inv- of bond investments there, and that Again, was getting interest rates right, but not just in Australia, but globally, because it was a global fund. Uh, and then since that, um, I've been doing it in the last fifteen years in hedge funds, where you, again, still taking views on interest rates, but on a more leveraged basis, um, as well as taking view on currencies, because often the, the what central banks do with rates will drive the currency. Um, so that's always been my expertise. And to your, you know, to housing, it's one of the questions I get asked most asked most often at the barbecue, as, as you said people always want to know what's going to go on with housing. What's going to go on with interest rates first? Will housing keep going up? Um, Most people assume that the last 20 or 30 years is a good indication of the future, so I wanted to sort of just deconstruct uh, what's happened in the last 30 years and help people understand. Tell us a little bit about your findings and your thoughts of that. So what what people don't really think about too much is how much interest rates have come down over the last 30 years. Um, And interest rates have come down primarily because inflation's come down. So we had a big burst of activity in the late 80s in housing when we had the deregulation. So as I I mentioned in the article, up until 1983, interest rates were capped. I think, for memory, at Mm -hmm. 13.5%. And it was only post-regulation in 83 that interest rates could go wherever the central bank felt they needed to go. Before that, it was credit control. They would only lend a certain amount of money, and once they'd lent that, you couldn't get a loan. uh, it was a new regime, we had a big boom in housing because there was so much credit available and then they had to start controlling inflation. So what people didn't realise was as inflation came down, interest rates came down and also the risk premium you had to have in the outlook for interest rates came down because inflation wasn't going to go high again. So there was always, you always priced interest rates a little bit higher uh, in, the, in the 90s because you were concerned that inflation might come back, that the longer it spent down, the longer you could take out that sort of insurance pricing. So we've had a cycle of steadily lower and lower and lower interest rates, and what that meant for people investing in housing was they could borrow more. And when you're borrowing, all you're concerned about is what's your monthly repayment. So as the interest rates becomes a lower average, <coughs> you could increase your monthly repayment. So roughly, let's just say simply, when the interest rate went from ten percent to five percent, you could double what you buy what you could buy mm-hmm. and have the same monthly repayment. And so that got amortised into the house into the price of houses. So the really strong growth we've seen, in the last 25 years has predominantly
0: been driven by just pricing in that lower interest rate expense. And you're talking about really interest rates going from 18% early 90s down to 4%, sub 4%. Yeah, so the cash rate's
1: gone from 18% down to one and a half. We've always had a spread over the cash rate for mortgages. They didn't quite go much north of 18, 19 um, in the in. 1990 because Keating actually came out and put a cap on it. Um, but normally you'd tr- the mortgage rate's always 2-3% over the cash rate. Um, and so we've, got, we've gone from 18% down to one and a half. Really, we can't go much lower. Yes, zero. Yes. Some, some, some places went to zero. But on average now, this is about as low as rates are going to go. In a, a much longer term horizon, 10-20 years, um, we're, we're at the low end of the range. We might we get an average low still, we're not going to see a, a burst of inflation, but you're no longer going to see interest rates, the average interest rate for the next 10 years is going to be a little different to the
0: last 10 years, perhaps even a little bit higher. So the other part of the article that talks about what affects house prices, one being interest rates um, and affordability in terms of people basically just loading up as much as they can repay, mm. um, not not whether it's a good or bad investment, the prospects for growth, it's what they can afford. I, I want a house that looks like this, how close can I get to that? Exactly. Um, the other part you talk about is unemployment. And I think if I'm right, correct me here, is that unemployment sort of consolidated around the five and a half mark and is now heading down, which I'd be interested to know seems to be around full unemployment and, or, or very, very low sorry, full employment Mm. um, and very, very low and that's the other part that affects it. Talk to us a little bit about how that interacts to affect house prices.
1: Sure, so we're we're currently at 5.4 on the unemployment rate and we have been averaging around 5.7 for the last 18 months so we've just started to move lower as as you mentioned. 5% is what the RBA thinks is full employment and by full employment we mean where we're not putting upward pressure on inflation via wages. So we're not that far away from what would be considered full employment in Australia. So it's a pretty healthy level. What I was saying in in the article uh, was that in Australia we have full recourse loans, which means that if you can't make your housing repayment, um, they will take all your assets, house and everything else, so you go bankrupt. So the last thing people will do in Australia is not make their housing repayment. They'll eat baked beans for a month before they don't pay their housing repayment. And what that means is they've got to be forced to do it. And the only way they're forced is if they lose their job. They literally don't have money. So you only ever see forced selling in the Australian housing market when the unemployment rate rises noticeably, which is in a recession. Now we haven't had a recession since 1990. Mm-hmm. Uh, even in the financial crisis, uh, there was panic and we thought we were gonna have a recession and the bid disappeared in the Palm Beach properties for a while, but property really didn't skip a beat. Uh, there was. No, no turnover for a little while, while people waited to see what's going to happen, then 18 months later it was starting to rise again. And that's because our unemployment rate only went up about a percent, percent and a half. So unless you get a proper recession and there's widespread unemployment, and people are forced to sell, you don't see house prices fall, you just see turnover
0: stop because people just won't sell. So we've had this sort of perfect storm in that we've had 25 odd years of recession, no recession. And at the same time, we've had practically the same time if a little bit longer of interest rates continually coming down. Exactly. Which is why you get a lot of people, um, clients, people you talk to who have built significant wealth out of property and therefore, you know, feel the next 25 years is going to mirror that.
1: Yeah, yeah. So if you accept that we've had low interest rates amortized into the price of property, then you, you have to accept that that's not going to happen again from these levels, it just can't. So you've Explain got to- Explain what you mean by that. So if the if you've kept your, if you've borrowed on a million dollar property at 10%, Yes. Uh, you're making a 100,000 payment a year. Yep. When the interest rate drops to 5%, you can, if you want to pay a 100,000 a year, you can borrow 2 million. Yes. We're now down to one and a half percent. So we can't keep going lower. So unless you, uh, you know, unless you think there was some other factor that drove housing prices that much higher, uh, rather than the low interest rates, it's hard to see why it could happen, why we would get that again. Now paper, people will talk to immigration, for example, mm-hmm. uh, and immigration levels are very high at the moment, and they've actually started to pick up again. But at the end of the day, that's controlled by the government. So if immigration, over, over the long term, over the last 30 years, we've had many waves of immigration, uh, all the way back to Hawke and Keating. So, it ebbs and flows the immigration level and it's a political, it's a political football. If it gets too high and it's, and it's getting into the press and it causes problems, the government comes out and says we're going to cut immigration back down by 100,000. So it's not a long-term, it's not a really long-term cyclical or structural driver because the government can choose to control it. Uh, so you know, I, I think you know, most of the movement still
0: comes uh, from that structural effect of lower interest rates. You allude to a little bit in the article, but talk to me a little bit about Chinese demand and investment.
1: Yep, so we're, we're very similar to all the Commonwealth countries actually. The Chinese have, a, have a, a real penchant for going into Canada, New Zealand, Australia um, and uh, not so much London, uh, that's more the Russians, but what you've seen in all three countries is a pushback on the Chinese investors because all three countries have been having their property prices bid up by the Chinese buyer. Yep,
0: Um, so when the children can't afford to buy houses, people get upset.
1: Yes and see the the Chinese like the education system in these three countries, that's why they're coming in so aggressively and they also like the legal system, it's a system they're familiar with with Hong Kong. So so the the real question is will the governments allow it to continue happening? So uh, we've always said, well not always but in, in the last few years it's always been the case that the Chinese can only buy off the plan, they cannot buy existing properties. Uh, New Zealand just moved to that model uh, this year. Uh, in Canada they, they've put on a, a, a very large stamp duty on foreign purchases, they've raised it from I think 6% to 15%, it's something like that, don't quote me. Um, but the point is that uh, the governments can push back on the Chinese, so if it becomes if you, if someone was to argue, well, the Chinese purchaser is going to continue to drive house prices through the roof, you'd say, well, why would the government allow that? Um, and you know, we've already seen the governments taking measures in all these countries to stop that. So, I, I don't think
0: again uh, that's going to be.
1: It, it's, oh, it's, it can be there as a factor, but it's not. It's not going to be something so that would cause. It's not
0: a long-term structural driver. Yeah. H- how much of the recent price? In you know just ballpark of the recent price increases we've seen over the last five years, would you say it would be attributed to that type of effect? Um,
1: look, I'd, I'd be if, if we look at off-the-plan purchases that the Chinese were doing. Um, it's almost it's, I say Chinese. It's a, it's listed as foreigners. We've only ever got a handle on this in the last two years when New South Wales imposed a, a stamp duty on Chinese purchases, um, and you know. For memory, I'd have to go back and check the data, but for memory, uh, off the plan, uh, foreign purchases were getting up to 40% thereabouts. So you know, the question is, you know, how much are they lifting the price uh, that causes uh, existing dwellings to get dragged up with it? So you know, we've, had, we've had a uh, 50% rise in property prices in the last eight years. I would find it hard uh, to attribute more than 10% to the Chinese there. Arguably it, might be, arguably it might be less.
0: What's your outlook for interest rates in 2018 in the next sort of two or three years? So we've got, we're expecting two hikes
1: per year for the next three years. Um, now most people will say to you, oh my God, there's so much debt out there, how could that possibly happen? Uh, the economy will fall in a hole. Uh, you, can, you can easily calculate what it costs to service the debt when you get those interest rate repayments. And the, and the RBA has in their chart pack the debt, the debt servicing cost um, in Australia. So debt servicing right now is, is to probably in the bottom 10% of what it's been for the last 15, 20 years. So there's plenty of room for the cost of servicing to go up, which, which makes sense, interest rates are the lowest we've seen. There's a lot more debt out there, uh, but interest rates are a lot lower. So we calculate that if you did 50 basis points per year for three years, you'd move back to about the 75% quintile on the range that you've been in for the last 15 years, which would be a normal cycle in interest rates. If this was being done 15 years ago, it would have been twice that. It would have been 100 points a year for three years to get the same impact. So you have to, the debt does make a difference. It means more muted rises in rates will be required to slow the economy, but it doesn't mean that you don't have a cycle.
0: Yeah, far, far more sensitivity now yeah. to interest rate rises. You know, That's right. 18% Uh, isn't quite the same set of breaks it was back in 92. Debt
1: servicing servicing at 18% in 92 uh, would be less than debt servicing at uh, when we get those six
0: rises of 25 points, so less than 3% now. That's how much more debt is in the system. Okay and 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 out of this you feel that the property prices which is the big one in the barbecue talk is likely to go sideways, sort of zero to 5% rises um, for the next few years? Yeah, I I would say next few years, next decade. um,
1: The only only variable that would change that, so if we just consider rates on their own,
0: Mm -hmm. I
1: would say for the next decade, rates will average slightly higher rather than lower. So you don't have that tailwind anymore to property prices. So the only factor that would see them percolate a little bit would be the ebbs and flow in immigration and offshore investors. And as I mentioned before, if we ever see that sort of pressuring prices up too much, you'll get a political reaction to say, well, we'll trim, we'll trim immigration, we'll bring in more stamp duty. We've already seen stamp duty go up on foreign purchases. So so you'll get ebbs and flow in those two factors. It might see you range from zero to 5% a year, I think, over the next five to
0: 10 years. And you feel that the debt servicing levels in Australia aren't out of hand, aren't out of control? No, we've got,
1: I mean, if you, if you consider it, debt servicing's perfectly fine, debt servicing's low. So is debt a problem? Now, when we talk about debt, you've also got to talk about the assets. Um, and at the moment, uh, Australians have never been wealthier. So when we measure housing, when we look at housing wealth, uh, when we look at wealth in Australia, it's actually 1,000% of income, 10 times. Um, versus nearly two times on the debt side so that gap of 800% is the highest we've ever seen so yes There's a lot of there's a lot of debt, but there's far more equity um, So the debt itself uh, Yes, it, when does debt become a problem when you can't service it So as long as interest rates don't rise too much the debt itself won't become a problem
0: Perhaps we could talk a little bit more broadly about the economy both domestically and internationally. What's your outlook? so
1: most people who focus on the Australian economy are totally, totally absorbed about the housing story, a mild slowdown that we've got going on in housing at the moment. The economy must be going terribly. Uh, what we're looking at is the rest of the economy. So you know, housing you know, makes up about five to eight percent of the economy. Uh, we've, meanwhile, we've got the mining sector is coming back. It's had a big slump after the investment hangover that it had from the mining boom, and now that's unwinding. So WA, the unemployment rate went from 3.5 to 6.5%. It's now, in the last two years, it's now come back down to about 5.7, but we see that falling quite smartly um, over the coming 12 months. And WA was actually taking about 1.5% off growth in Australia for the last two years. So that big drag from WA is gonna disappear. So when people are looking at aggregate growth for Australia, there's a big negative falling out of the calculation. We think housing's gonna take off a half, but WA coming back adds one and a half, so combined with other factors, we've got growth actually mildly accelerating, in line with what the RBA say, about three and a half percent. And unemployment's gonna be falling uh, reasonably smartly, like we think it could be five percent mid-year. Um, so that takes the economy back to a pretty healthy
0: state. So that means rates start rising? August, we think. August, okay. Yeah. And from an international perspective? Uh, we're in one of the healthiest
1: environments we've seen for certainly, po- it's absolutely post-crisis, but arguably for the last 25 years. We've got, we've got global GDP about to hit 4% in our forecast, which we haven't seen, uh, I don't think, since the late 90s. Uh, so it's a very healthy global environment. And what people are underestimating is how synchronized this pickup has become globally. Uh, so I'm very much a, a subscriber to the rogoff Reinhardt view of the world, mm-hmm. which was that a balance sheet recession takes a very long time to work for, on average, seven to 10 years. We are now 11 years since the financial crisis. So I think what we've seen globally uh, as we have worked through this balance sheet recession at a broad global level, it probably got extended a little bit with the European crisis that we had in 2012, 13 but we're in a very healthy state now where we're starting to embark on a very normal cyclical recovery across the whole developed and emerging world at the same time. So it's a, it's a very healthy global
0: environment. And if we drill down a little bit more on Asia, China, yep. um, you know, a lot of people concerned about the banking system, um, cities that have been built that are vacant, these type of issues, how, how do you see things? from yep. that economy, which appears to be, you know, positioned to challenge challenge the US in, you know, depending on what sort of metrics you want to look at, but almost all of them.
1: Yeah, I think, I mean, we've been talking about those sorts of problems and concerns for China probably mm-hmm. for five or six years now. Uh, I think the thing you've got to understand with China is most of the debt is in state-owned enterprises, it's semi-public sector. And so if there ever became a problem in the banking system in China, it will end up being taken onto the balance sheet of the government um, and becoming government debt. And so their government debt levels are relatively low, about 60% of GDP, compared to countries, that you know, US at 80 and Italy at 120 and so on. So they've got a lot of room if you were to transfer it from private to public sector. So I, And it, it's a very managed economy, as we know. So I really don't think we're going to see a debt crisis uh, like a Western-style debt crisis that we're used to. I don't think we'll see that in China because of the way they manage the economy. Uh, I think they'll be similarly a beneficiary of the rest of the globe picking up. They, are, they export to the whole world. So although they're trying to slow down on the housing side the, and the bad loans and they are tightening the screws a little bit and the general consensus is we're gonna see a mild slowing in China, there's just as much probability here that we see it still outperform just based on the rest of the world that it's exporting to is gonna lift its growth.
0: Now it always seems to be, it's the risks we don't know, and we don't understand that, that bring us apart, but what are the sort of non risks that you see, you know, if you were to think about overwhelming, you know, bullish in terms of growth and synchronised global growth, etc. What are the things that, that keep you awake at night? Uh, so I think the way to think about it is, we've had a, we've
1: had a virtually comatised global economy for almost a decade. And what we've been watching is central banks in particular just pouring fuel on a smoldering fire, if you like, Mm -hmm. trying to get it to ignite. And the risk is now that when it ignites, it's going to really ignite because we've got interest rates still negative in Japan and Europe, uh, still at 1.5% in the U.S., with economies that are quite normal. I mean, unemployment in the U.S. is 4.1%. The lowest it's been since since the late 60s was a brief episode at 3.8 in 2000. So you've got a record low unemployment virtually in the US. In the UK, it is the lowest it's been since 73. In Japan, it's the lowest it's been since 76. So you've got an extremely healthy world with negative interest rates. So the real risk is that we are going to see an ignition of wage and price pressures globally, and that's when central banks are gonna have to sit there and say, we're gonna have to induce a recession to get wages and inflation. So you go back to a normal overheating economy bring on a recession. So that's the real risk out there and that's the real risk for global growth is if that happens, the central banks are actually too far away from what we call neutral mm-hmm. to get inflation and wages under control if it was to happen. Like, I mean, in the US right now, if, if, if wages started to kick, uh, you would normally wanna have neutral interest rates a year before that happens. And that's what they've always done since Volcker in the 80s. This time they've said, oh, let's just run it red hot because we'll have all the time in the world to get back. So if wages kick, everyone will look at the US and say, well, it's going to take you 18 months just to get back to neutral and you should have been there a year ago. So you're two or three years behind the, the curve here.
0: Uh, that's the real risk. And are you seeing any sign side of, side of wages growth?
1: Um, for this year, we'd say, I actually wrote there's a 25% chance of that scenario this year because where you see the signs are in the business surveys and in particular, the small business surveys in the US you haven't, when you look at the questions in there where they say, um, are you having to pay higher wages? Are you finding it hard to employ people? Are you seeing lots of people quitting to take other jobs? All those indicators are showing that there's a lot of wage pressures building. So we haven't quite seen it coming through in the real data yet, mm-hmm. uh, but the, the surveys from the, the businesses, data, yeah. Yeah, are all saying there's a lot of pressure building. And, and you would expect that at 4% unemployment. So so whether it manifests itself uh, and and, you know, this year and how clearly, I mean, there's other factors with wages. Uh, one big factor that we think people on Earth estimate is demographics. You've got a big baby boomer uh, retirement going on in most of the Western world. Uh, in the U.S., we think it's taking about 0.6% off wages per year. So there's a downward force from that. Uh, profit margins can absorb higher wages without creating inflation because profit margins in the U.S. are the highest they've been for decades. So so it doesn't have to be automatically inflationary, but it's
0: certainly a risk
1: uh, that the market could worry about.
0: And you've got a lot of talk about technological change and digital disruption, you know, taking the pressure off wage growth. Sure,
1: yep. So... Uh, I mean Tim Tui He's written two articles for us on our website. Um, one about inflation, one about wages. Um, mm-hmm. On the on the technology side, suppressing inflation, he went through the CPI basket in the US and took out every item that you could possibly argue would benefit from uh, technology forcing down lower prices, and then he calculated what was the inflation measure in that, and, and worked out it's taking about 007 percent off inflation per year, i.e minimal so although the story makes a lot of sense yeah yeah, and you can talk about lots of anecdotes the reality is it's not being it's actually not measured in the data as having big downward force. so when we talk low inflation that's not what's causing it Um, on the wages side uh, again there's we talk about robotics and all these wonderful things going on with robotics but again you're not seeing uh, when you look through the sectors you're not seeing any evidence so uh, we're we find those two stories um, they're interesting and we're always looking, trying to see if we can actually calculate the impact, but we're really not finding that much of an impact. There's broader factors that, uh, per, the low wages and low inflation are perfectly consistent with what we've seen in output gaps and demographics and profit margins and those other factors that we traditionally
0: look at as a guide. Given your outlook and your stance this gro- global synchronised economy and this growth, what are the sectors that you, you most like going forward Okay, So for, well for us in a, a, as a macro fund,
1: um, yes. we're, we're predominantly trading in interest rates and currencies, mm-hmm. and we're trying to get the central banks right and the impact that's gonna have on those. When we, we can trade in equity indices, um, but my view is that, you know, I, I, I wrote um, this week actually uh, that I think there's a 50% chance of a 10 to 15% correction in equities this year. Uh, Now, that might not sound much, but when you're having up 15 or 20% years, it may still result in a flat year, but I think we're going to see quite a bit more volatility than we've seen uh, in the last couple of years, which isn't saying much because we've had record low volatility. (laughs) Uh, And that's going to be driven by interest rates going higher rather smartly. So uh, if if bond rates were to rise a percent, uh, the valuation effect on the equity market would cause you to have about a 10% fall. So uh, we're, we're fairly uh, cautious on the equity market, uh, but our, our highest conviction is just that rates are gonna go higher uh, globally, uh, and we're positioning in our fund for rates going higher in the US, in Canada, in Australia, New
0: Zealand, and the UK, and Europe. <laughs> so. Terrific. Brett, I think that's a, a great summary. Thank you so much for elaborating on the article. I'll put that in the show notes. Um, thanks for joining us Inside the Road. Pleasure. thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com.